This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. General Michael Flynn at Armstrong Auditorium in Edmond, Oklahoma, presented by the Philadelphia Trumpet. What is Trumpet Hour's prediction for the fate of the U.S. dollar? The European Union and the information war. Why the battle for Niger matters. Building up bricks. On our panel discussion today, what we know about Russia and Ukraine. All this and more coming up next on Trumpet Hour. Welcome to Trumpet Hour. It is Friday, August 25th, 2023, and I'm Philip Nice with our Philadelphia Trumpet Writers at the end of a unique week. We started this week with the visit of General Michael Flynn to our campus here in Edmond, Oklahoma, where he did pretty much everything a visitor can do in 48 hours or so, meeting staff and spending quite a lot of time with the school children. And of course, sitting for an interview with Trumpet Daily presenter Stephen Flurry. Rumble.com slash Trumpet Daily, if you'd like to listen to that. Rumble.com slash Trumpet Daily. General Flynn, of course, a career United States Army intelligence officer, architect of counterinsurgency in Afghanistan and Iraq with Joint Special Operations Command, then director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, then National Security Advisor to Donald Trump, the corner office in the West Wing, before he was embroiled in the storm uh of litigation and lawfare that you can read about in America under attack, which he held up in that Trumpet Daily interview, rumble.com slash Trumpet Daily. The main event for General Flynn was delivering the Philadelphia Trumpet Lecture American Crisis at Armstrong Auditorium Monday night to a pretty full house there in uh, in the theater. Uh, hundreds of people listening and able to ask him questions. And we talked about his visit in Trumpet Hour on Wednesday, and we appreciate the feedback listeners have been saying about that show, you know, basically right on. We really are in a war for our minds. So if you'd like to hear a little more about General Flynn's visit and that aspect of his message, uh, you can go to thetrumpet.com slash radio and look for our last episode of Trumpet Hour. One of the things, one of the specific things in an international relations that General Flynn mentioned was BRICS, that uh, grouping of nations. So we will get to the Asia region and really have a good discussion on that and on the war in Ukraine. Uh, but this week we will start with the Anglo-America region, which General Flynn also definitely warned us to watch. So let's introduce this with an email from a listener. Uh, there was some negativity in that email, which is easy to move past because this listener also made some substantive arguments or, that should be addressed. Uh, he talked about the, the uh, U.S. dollar specifically. This is a very specific issue, uh, the, the value of the U.S. dollar, the role of the U.S. dollar, and... Uh, he says that the, the dollar is stronger than ever and getting even stronger. He also sent a chart showing how uh, the percentage of dollars used in international transactions uh, has has really gone up and the percentage of euros used in international transactions has really gone down. So uh, he challenges us to explain the the uh, value of the dollar, the what we say will happen with the dollar. Um, so give us, if you will, an all at once, give us the Anglo update and an answer to this question about the value of the dollar and the future of the American economy. Yeah, there actually was, uh, as far as the Anglo update goes, uh, a bit of positive news in America this week, more so than I usually cover on this program. Uh, Michael Flynn's visit here was very positive, uh, and he's traveling the country holding um, rallies, just trying to build up um, 
uh, coalition to fight back against what he calls uh, socialism with American characteristics, uh, playing off that word socialism with Chinese characteristics that they have on the other side of the Pacific Ocean. Also, um, Donald Trump skipped the Republican debates this week and had an interview with Tucker Carlson that got 150 million views on uh, Elon Musk's newly labeled X platform. Uh, I think a number of people, it's not a direct, direct comparison between Twitter views and the television ratings, but it actually looks like uh, more people probably watched uh, that interview with Tucker Carlson then actually watched the Republican debates, which is uh, another positive sign for just building this coalition to fight back against socialism with American characteristics. I have a computer here and you don't. Uh, it's that, those views are now on up to 255 million. <laughs> wow. Oh, yeah. Trump said it probably would go over 200 million. So between Flynn's uh, visit uh, and Trump's uh, interview with Tucker. Uh, some good positive news in America this week. Donald Trump was also arrested this week uh, in um, regards to uh, his attempts to expose election fraud in Georgia, uh, which seems like a negative story. It's never nice being arrested, uh, especially for something when you didn't do it. Uh, but it also is going to put a spotlight, uh, a national spotlight on election fraud, which is definitely a silver lining here between Flynn's visit, Trump's interview, uh, the spotlight on election fraud, uh, a number of things actually kind of looking up for politics in the United States. But <laughs> to transition back to something, um, <laughs> something more sober, you have this issue with the dollar and Donald Trump's well aware that he actually gave an interview. This was an interview this week, but this was an interview last week saying that if the dollar loses its reserve currency status, uh, that would be a worse defeat than like a military defeat. It's like, cause it'd be, uh, even if America lost, like say in Ukraine, <laughs> uh, which is this proxy war having its Ukraine, it's like losing the re reserve currency status would be worse for America than that. And, and Trump thinks there's a real chance that could happen. Uh, now, that is a question in regards to what this um, listener brought uh, to me that I've gotten before. Uh, a number of people be like, well, isn't the dollar getting stronger? And um, just for the other listeners, I do need to define the terms here because you will see articles saying the dollar is getting weaker and you'll see articles saying the dollar getting stronger. And they're both right uh, from your perspective. If you go to the grocery store, uh, inflation is a very real threat. You notice that the dollar purchases less than it used to. Uh, money printing, quantitative easing, uh, chronic debts, it is weakening the dollar overall. However, other countries like the euro and uh, other currencies like the euro and the yuan and the yen are also getting weaker, and they're getting weaker faster than the dollar is getting weaker. So when you look at an exchange rate compared to those other currencies, the dollar's getting stronger, uh, even though all current, pretty much all currencies are getting weaker. And that's what I wanted to uh, focus on today, because it's Donald Trump's warning, except for the dollar's getting weaker, it could lose its reserve currency status. Uh, and this listener's right in that really the only reason the dollar hasn't lost its reserve currency status already is the other options are in even worse shape. Uh, but that doesn't mean <laughs> just because the other options are an even worse thing that this situation is going to continue uh, forever. If all nations are running chronic debts and all nations are struggling with inflation, uh, 
you could see, and we very likely will see, the complete collapse of fiat money in a global financial crisis. Uh, and that's something uh, Herbert W. Armstrong talked about since the 80s um, and, and before, where uh, he's looking at these prophecies in Revelation uh, 17 and, and other places where God's revealing to him that there's going to be this 10-nation superpower in Europe that rises up and conquers the United States. And so th there's dozens of prophecies that say that, that the superpower in Europe will conquer the United States. There isn't necessarily a specific prophecy that says the U.S. is going to lose the reserve currency status. Uh, but that's why Mr. Flurry refers to this as Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong's greatest personal prophecy. It's not directly in the Bible, but he felt um, under God's guidance very strongly that the only way a united Europe could conquer the United States is that if a financial crisis completely decimated America. And so we still look for that to happen. And you've got other people like Donald Trump and other analysts saying that that's look like it's going to happen. And so I want to I wanted to be clear here that when I do talk about the dollar losing its reserve currency status and uh, new currency taking its place, I'm not necessarily saying that the dollar is going to get gradually weaker as the euro gets gradually stronger until Europe surpasses America. Uh, it could be very much Mr. Armstrong more expected that like the dollar's weakness was going to create a global financial uh, crisis that basically just flipped over the monopoly board, uh, let the pieces go rolling <laughs> all over the ground. And then you have a new currency with a united European super state that just like rises up like a phoenix out of the ashes. Um, it's not it's not so much that <laughs> Europe's going to gradually replace the do uh, re replace the dollar because, like you said, right now it's like right now actually the dollar is getting stronger compared to the euro. But both the dollar and the euro are struggling with inflation, are struggling with debt, are hurling the world towards a global financial crisis that's going to reset everything. Uh, and you can see that just looking at the laws of finance. Now, the laws of finance won't necessarily tell you uh, which power is going to rise out of that mess. Uh, but Bible prophecy does that. They're like, when, when, the, um, when the global financial crisis comes, it, it'll, be, it'll be Europe that gets its act together first. And what are those prophecies and, and uh, the literature that you would point to to uh, understand kind of the larger picture? We have a trumpet article, A Bold Warning, America's Economic Collapse, that was written by our editor-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Flurry. Um, it mainly focuses on Revelation 17 and about these 10 nations in Europe uniting, and then goes back through the history uh, of what Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong said about uh, a financial crisis made in America being the catalyst that brings that Revelation 17 prophecy to bear. So that was a bold warning, America's economic collapse, a bold warning, America's economic collapse at thetrumpet.com, as well as America under attack, uh, which uh, copies of which were endorsed and signed by General Flynn. He actually signed chapter six for many people, uh, America under attack. That chapter six, of course, is about the attack on, on General Flynn, americaunderattack.com. Uh, but yeah, the laws of finance uh, are are at play here, and one of the things that uh, is a law is if you want to use an international currency uh, by, that's issued by a government you can trust. 
um, and the government uh, that issues the United States dollar is becoming less and less uh, trustworthy. Um, and international finance is, of course, a complex of complexities, and and we can see what's happening now. Uh, the immediate future is fairly obscure, but Trumpet Hour makes the consistent claim that the the longer term outcome, and it's not that long, uh, is that America, which descended from ancient Israel, has rejected God, will be destroyed for it. The destruction will come at the hands of a united European superpower. And part of the impetus for the uniting of that empire will be an international financial crisis, which, as you said, is probably not going to happen gradually. It's not probably, um, but but the uh, the principle is there of of the dollar failing and the enormous American debt uh, being being uncontrollable. So we thank you for bringing us that update on President Trump and as well as the dollar. Now let's spin over to the region of Europe and Richard Palmer. A recent Build poll shows that 70% of Germans are unhappy with the work of their chancellor, 64% are unhappy with the government, only 22% say they want their leadership to continue. So it's becoming very, very clear that Germans are dissatisfied with their with their current government. There's lots of bickering even in the coalition, and uh, I think there's a there's a real appetite for a change in leadership in Germany. That's something we have been watching for for a long time. Also, uh, the the uh, leader of the European People's Party, Manfred Weber. So this is one of the top, this is kind of the main right-wing party in the European Parliament. He gave an interview with Welt that was published on August 24th. He called for a European army and a European FBI. And he said these all need to be based on conservative Christian values. So we're, we're seeing calls for this kind of transformation of Europe into a super state continuing. Those are major stories. And those are people who are uh, struggling to get control of power over Europe. Uh, what is it that uh, Europe tends to do once they have power? That's your main story. Yeah, I think for my main, you know, a lot of times I feel like I'm trying to work hard to make you care about my story from all the way over in Europe. <laughs> uh, and it's, you know, and, and, and they do require, I think, a bit of thought and creativity to kind of understand why they're significant or how there's going how they're going to affect you. I think my main story today is something that could start affecting you as soon as next week. Uh, and certainly, I think you will feel this in the coming weeks and months. And that is that today, the European Union's Digital Service Act has gone into force. And what this does is basically this sets up a new European bureaucracy to police what is said online on any platforms that have any kind of global reach. So if you if your tech company reach, has more than 45 million European users, you have to be regulated now by this new bureaucracy. They will initially be hiring about 150 people that's going to uh, kind of run this regulation. And it has, it, it, it puts on the onus on these companies to curb disinformation. I think we're all familiar with the cop-out disinformation now that that anything anybody disagrees with is is labeled disinformation and it establishes gargantuan fines for companies that fall short of the European Union uh, rules here so firms could face fines of up to 6% of global revenue so say for twitter that would be hundreds of millions of dollars for facebook the fines would be in the billions wow so they've they've kind of they've got to tow the European Union 
line on that. And you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of people that sighed at relief, actually, uh, when this law was outlined. This was a year or two ago before it went into effect because the pro- initial proposals were dramatically worse. This is actually, if anything, a much watered down version of what they originally wanted. But even so, this is a big step towards censorship. And I was mentioning, look, this is going to affect you. Even if you don't live in Europe, this will affect you. For most major social media platforms, they're not going to split their platform. They're not going to have, okay, well, if in your, you, if you're in Europe, you cannot see these posts. But if in, you're in America with the First Amendment, we'll give you more freedom and you can see them. They'll just do what's simplest, which is to apply the toughest set of rules that exist in any large block, that will be the European Union, globally. And so this is going to impact what you're allowed to say on Facebook. And uh, I, I think even Twitter, I think Elon Musk has indicated he's going to comply with this. You know, He doesn't want to do 6% of Twitter's revenues. Now, maybe he will be more willing to, to come up with a workaround where if you're outside of Europe, you have more freedom. Perhaps he's somebody that might do that. But it's something that will have a worldwide impact on what is said online. And yeah, in some ways, I think it's not necessarily going to be a giant impact. Because right now, a bunch of Californian liberals are already censoring what you can and can't say online. You know, we felt that with our program. You know, we had to the Trumpet Daily. We had to go off YouTube uh, because we talked about the election seal. We talked about COVID. We talked about problems with the vaccine and, and how ridiculous lockdown laws, you know, all these things that you're not allowed to say. Uh, and the EU wasn't necessarily the one kicking us off then. And, and I think in a lot of ways, these Californian liberals that are running things, they think very similarly to the EU. But it is a change of who's in the driver's seat. And it is a change that's worth paying attention to. I think they are going to be stricter even than the liberals in, in the US are. And I think they'll care about some different things than the liberals that currently do it. And I think to have you know, I, I am not saying everything is fantastic and the EU is going to now wreck everything and drive the car into the wall. I'm saying it's pretty bad right now and it's about to get a bit worse. You know, I'm not happy with the way it's being regulated right now where you've got a bunch of, te- of tech giants that think very much like Barack Obama and kind of agree with him and support him entirely deciding what can and can't be said. But it's still noteworthy to note that now the European Union is kind of wrenching control of that censorship machine and they will be censoring things the way that they want them to be censored. Right. That has been a theme. And I hope that everyone listening understands that these are enormously powerful platforms. Uh, America Under Attack quotes Lee Smith, I think it is, who's, who calls them a whole of society industry. Uh, the, these platforms, this this control over information, it's far too powerful for people to not get control of it. There is definitely a huge struggle going on for control over uh, these these uh, uh, channels of information, these platforms of information distribution um, in order to control the users, in order, order to control what people learn, what they know, and uh, what they do. Uh, we've got an article online right now about uh, Canada and how the trumpet is among those uh, news sources that are uh, unable to reach people in Canada through through Facebook. And uh, I know the trumpet advertising is blocked even in the US, not by law, but ultimately by the owners of Facebook and Twitter. So these are enormously powerful platforms. And there is a war, there is a struggle going on, and you need to keep your eye on that and and where it's heading. 
That's right. And it, it's kind of, it feels like in hindsight, we should have known this would happen and not be surprised about this because you're right. Like what, what anything that can influence the minds of millions of people is going to be fought over. You know, governments, the, U, the US, I think, is, is unique, even among, say, you know, Anglo-Saxon countries is unique in the amount of freedom that the First Amendment gives. You have, you know, in, in the United Kingdom, even what you say on TV is governed by Ofcom. And Mark Stein, for example, was forced off air because of criticizing, I think it was the COVID vaccine or something like that. Uh, and so, yeah, governments have, have muscled, muscled in on this. And the fact that Europe is now, work, I mean, I think maybe this is even the most significant part, that Europe is not content to have the Californian liberals in the driver's seat. That they can, right. like, yeah, we agree with what most of what you're doing. But we want control. Yeah, we, we want to, to control it. it. That's right. Yeah, we can't trust that you're going to uh, do what we want from here on out. And that so this fact really exposes what is happening in Europe, and that what is happening in Europe is sinister. That there is a power rising in Europe that wants to control your mind, and that wants to control what people think, what they think is normal, what they think sounds crazy, what they think sounds unusual. You know, they want to be able to control all of that. And that's what Trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry really focused on. He had an article, it was uh, four years back, but I think it's one of those landmark articles uh, that that just really helped frame thinking about what is going on here. It's called Germany is Taking Control of the Internet. And that's what he, that's one of the big things that he talks about is that this kind of yanking of control of the internet and the fact that they have this ambition, it, 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 it shows the rise of the Holy Roman Empire. It's a symptom of the rise of this power that we've been talking about, that we've been saying, hey, there's a power that wants to dictate to you what you do, what you act in your private life that is rising in Europe. You see that spirit behind laws like the Digital Services Act and the fact that it was initially way more ambitious. And they kind of, you know, they had to fight with Facebook and and uh, Facebook kind of got it back down a little bit. You know, it describe it, it, it reveals, you know, this is a very, this is, you, you, you read Revelation 17, that we, these scriptures that we talk about that are in kind of archaic King James language. This is what that looks like in the modern world. A major power that comes along and says, we want control of what people can say, and we want to be able to shut people down and charge billions of euros and fines. I mean, there's talk of potentially jailing people if they say things that we don't want to say. It exposes that power. Uh, and so, you know, this this article, Germany is taking control of the Internet, is a, is a great way to see how you know this is your Bible coming to the Internet and the modern world. Um, you know, it's relevant even to, to those discussions that we see around us. Mr. Flurry has said that there will be a 21st century Holy Roman Empire. That's one of the things he has emphasized over and over and over based on, as you've brought out over and over and over, uh, Bible prophecy. And and you wonder, you know, how can that grouping of nations, different languages, different currencies, different histories of being at war with each other, how could they become uh, such a unified block uh, to be an empire? This is one of the requirements. This is one of the things you've get, you've got to watch for Europe um, exerting more uh, dictatorial control over over the people. Uh, you're not going to have a, a bunch of de democracies and people voting their way to a 21st century Holy Roman Empire. So continue to watch that. Continue to watch this trend is, of course, just part of that. And uh, have a look at Germany is taking control of the Internet at thetrumpet.com. You are listening to Trumpet Hour.
Welcome back to Trumpet Hour. I'm your host, Philip Nice, and this is Mihailo Zekic bringing you an update on the Middle East and North Africa. Yes, Niger, or if you want to sound posh like me, Niger, uh, has obviously been going through a uh, the, the effects of a coup, which we've talked before on this program. Um, on Thursday, the uh, junta that's ruling in Niger right now uh, has authorized the soldiers of Mali and Burkina Faso, two other uh, countries in West Africa there, Northwest Africa area, to uh, in- come into Niger's borders and intervene in case of a foreign attack. Now, I mentioned on this program before that um, ECOWAS, which is the Economic Community of West African States, which at this point basically means Nigeria and friends, has threatened to put in a, a send a military response to what's going on in Niger. Uh, we'll see if that happens. There's been a lot of talk both ways from ECOWAS. But, and from Mali and Burkina Faso's perspective, they've talked about intervening before as well. They're both run by junta governments right now, so it's more like a uh, bunch of uh, rogue armies taking control of their own. Uh, the reason I want to bring this up again is, well, for one thing, you're seeing battle lines drawn. You're seeing uh, countries talk more and more about intervening outside countries that technically don't have a dog in the fight intervening. So this could turn into from just a localized coup, as if Africa doesn't already have quite a few of those all the time, to a regional war. And the second reason I want to bring this up is the potential impact of this war. If I were to ask you what the deadliest conflict in the world has been since World War II, some things might come to mind like the war in Afghanistan or maybe the war in the Balkans, Ukraine, some of these other ones that are more in the public mindset. But what if I told you it was in Africa? It was in the 1990s and early 2000s, the second Congo war, um, and it totaled a death of roughly 5.4 million deaths. Uh, a lot of that was due to malnutrition and other things, uh, side effects of the war other than being killed. But it goes on saying the second or the deadliest war in the world since World War II happened in Africa two decades ago. The Africa has a huge population. Africa has a lot of different groups that are maybe willing to do a lot more to each other than Western armies would. When you're talking about a country like Niger that has links with Europe with France, with Russia, uh, with the Wagner Group, which may or may not have orchestrated this crew. We'll talk a little bit about that in the later segment. You could basically see the outside world get sucked into a bloody quagmire. Um, the BBC recently interviewed the special envoy that ECOWAS sent to uh, Niger to start talking things, and he, they asked him if he was anticipating a military conflict, and he told them that, no, we don't want war. You saw what happened in Afghanistan. You saw what happened in Iraq. You saw what happened in Ukraine. We don't want that to happen here. The implication is if war breaks out, it could be on that scale. So it might be, again, in West Africa, it might be a part of the world that's easy for a lot of people to overlook. Um, when it's your boys getting sucked in to put their boots on the ground, it won't be that far away from home for too long. So who knows how this will turn out, but we'll definitely keep an eye on it. Now, it's impossible to cover the conflict, the suffering, the injustice that is going on worldwide every day. So Trumpet Hour picks only certain ones for certain reasons. So what is the reason that you are directing our attention toward Niger? Well, prophecy in Daniel 11, verses 40 to 43, talk about an anti- two end-time power blocks, a king of the south and a king of the north. We talked before about those two representing the king, the king of the south, radical Islam, led by Iran. 
which of course has quite a heavy presence in North Africa and many other places, and the King of the North being Europe, which as the former colonial power still has a lot of influence in that part of the world. You keep reading uh, reading the prophecy and refers to countries in Africa like Egypt, Libya, Ethiopia being allied with Iran. Europe responds with a whirlwind attack. Our editor-in-chief, Mr. Fleury, has discussed that prophecy and how Europe will surround Iran and its allies, meaning Europe will have a presence in Africa too. Uh, if you continue on to Daniel chapter 12, you'll see this will bring it to a time of suffering like the world has never seen, a nuclear war. And it starts in part by an arms race, in a sense, by a, a troop buildup in Africa. Something has to drag all these countries in. Right now, it's countries like Russia that have a lot of influence in Africa. We don't expect Russia to be a major player in this coming clash, per se, or at least in the in the catalyst for it. And with all the chaos going in right now, perhaps radical Islam can take advantage of this. This, is, uh, this area, Niger, Mali, these are all Muslim-majority countries. Um, Europe might be forced to come and protect some of their former colonies. Uh, we don't know for sure, but... This war in Niger, if it escalates, could be a reason and a big one at that for all these outside powers to get an interest in Africa in the first place. If our readers would like to learn more, this isn't about Africa per se, but it gives you the general prophetic uh, overview of what's going on in Africa. I'd recommend our editor-in-chief's booklet, Germany's Secret Strategy to Destroy Iran, that goes through that prophecy and what it actually means as practically on the ground with all these powers interacting with each other and gives us our, re our listeners a perspective to watch for. That's right. I'd also recommend an article I recently read in draft form. Mr. Palmer, your October, November trumpet article. What, what is the name of that? The working title? Working title is why Niger is a catastrophe for Europe. Right. So have a look at thetrumpet.com and subscribe to the print edition of the Philadelphia Trumpet. It's free. It always is free. It always will be free. It always has been free. And uh, make sure you do that before this uh, October, November issue comes out so you can educate yourself on why uh, this particular region is important. So there are very specific reasons why we highlight the events that we highlight. And those reasons have us watching the Asia quarter of the globe. So let's go over to Jeremiah Jacques to get an update on what's happening in Asia. Yeah, first, China is deepening ties with Cuba. This was clear yesterday when Chinese President Xi Jinping met with Cuban President Miguel Diaz-Canal, and he vowed to support Cuba in defending its national sovereignty. And uh, of course, this comes on the heels of reports we've discussed on Trumpet Hour about Chinese spy stations and even a military base uh, coming up in Cuba. So we should expect the Chinese influence on this island just about 90 miles from Florida to keep on deepening. Another quick China story here, the Chinese Communist Party has just introduced new education laws that are designed to fill Chinese students with extreme nationalism and even militarism. And so this is a, uh, a multifaceted plan to really indoctrinate the Chinese youth, even more so than they've already been indoctrinated. And analysts believe that this is a clear sign that the regime is preparing its young people to be ready for the battlefields. And then another quick story here about India. 
some very exciting news, actually, for the Indians, and that is that they became the fourth country in history to successfully land a spacecraft on the moon. This was on Wednesday that they landed the Chandrayaan-3 spacecraft on the lunar surface. That would be notable enough on its own, but this marks the first time that any nation has landed an aircraft on the moon's south pole. This is a place where traces of ice have been discovered, so scientists have long wanted to, you know, just be able to explore this region. And now, thanks to the Chandrayaan-3 spacecraft, that exploration can begin. And what happened to the Russian spacecraft? Uh, yeah, the Russian one, there was apparently a software malfunction. Um, moon one, Russia zero. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This, this has got to be one of my favorite quotes from a news article this week. I just had to raise this. Um, preliminary findings, it said on Sunday, showed that the lander had ceased to exist following a collision with the moon's surface. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you know, I find it hard not to laugh at Russia's expense. It, it, it was hard not to have a little bit of schadenfreude at those reports. I think the reason why the Russians rushed their landing was be because they knew the Indians were just about to land theirs, and they were both targeting the, the South Pole. So it would have been a historic first. So Russia kind of was like, oh, the, the Indian one is coming up. we got to hurry up and do it. And it ended up being a catastrophe and a colossal embarrassment. It's, it's interesting that the the space, you know, it was a huge, huge thing in the 60s, of course, in the United States when they uh, when we first um, or when we were racing the Russians uh, back then. But space is becoming more and more of a theater in uh, in in the current day. But let's go over to the main story that you want to bring out to us from Asia. Sure. Yes. The BRICS are multiplying. BRICS, that's uh, an informal group of states. It's made up of, up of Brazil. That's where we get the B. The R is Russia. ICS is India, China, and South Africa. So those are the five long-term members of BRICS. China is the most powerful one. And they just had a big meeting this week in South Africa. And the biggest development from that meeting was that they made the decision to invite six developing economies to join the bloc. Those six are Argentina, Egypt, Ethiopia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates. So these six are set to become official members on January 1st of 2024. And I guess they'll need to update their acronym at that time from BRICS to maybe BRICSAEISU, <laughs> or uh, maybe they'll rearrange the letters altogether. The most fitting acronym I can think of would be ICER Abuses. Or maybe some of our listeners can write in with uh, better suggestions. But anyway, this is a, it's a major expansion by this block. And the thing about BRICS is that it's intended to be kind of a geopolitical alternative to Western-led forums, forums like the G7 and the World Bank especially. So the goal is to just tilt the international order away from America and the West and, and kind of toward the South or the East. Um, and the group already represented about a quarter of the world's economy, even with just those five longtime members. So bringing these six new nations in at least gives the appearance of really bolstering its power and of moving the international order, you know, just further toward China and Russia and these other players. Now, it is true that BRICS plus countries, they have a lot of animosity toward each other. You know, the rivalry between China and India is well publicized and extremely fraught when Iran and Saudi Arabia are, you know, mortal enemies for thousands of years, or at least hundreds. Um, and there, there's plenty of tensions between many of the other members, too. But what they do all have in common is a disdain for American power and the U.S.-led order. So, you know, I, I think the real significance of BRICS at the moment it can be hyped, especially by its supporters. You know, it's almost presented as some kind of formal alliance or trade block. In truth, though, it has no defense mechanisms, it has no economic mechanisms. 
right now it's mostly just kind of a talk shop where leaders get together and say bad things about America and good things about themselves. Um, so it's more of a talk shop, not really cohesive. And many analysts are saying that the addition of these new members could actually dilute what little cohesion there had been. Um, so there could be something to that. But I think that that view discounts just how powerful a force shared hatred can be. It's almost not just shared hatred, but also a lot of these countries like Egypt, they depend on the United States heavily for their weapon systems. And a lot of these countries are being alienated right now by the current uh, uh, pres presidency in Washington. So uh, I would almost even say for some of these groups, it's more of an act of desperation because you see America's going down. America doesn't have their back anymore and they're doing whatever they can to stop some of these other powers from getting on their bad side as well to get support from countries like Russia and China. A lot of these countries are in really shaky terms, even just holding their own governments together. So it goes to show what kind of a vacuum the United States is leaving when it starts betraying some of its allies, even if maybe they're not the most savory. Well, to the point of shared hatred, before we pitch it back to you, Jeremiah, um, people underestimated the uh, anti-American shared hatred. How could uh, Muslims and uh, sexual deviants ally with each other well that shared hatred of of america's past has uh, grown very powerful indeed but take us back to bricks and and where you see that going yeah sure well uh you know it, it's i i think uh mahilo makes a makes a fair point there for sure um but if all these nations hate the u.s more than they hate each other even if just temporarily you know just long enough to prompt them to kind of bury the hatchet uh long enough to bring their combined wrath upon the u.s and specifically maybe the U.S. dollar, if they're able to, that could have major implications for the global power of, of America's currency and other aspects of uh, American power. Uh, any acronym that includes Russia and China <laughs> in, is, uh, is a force to be reckoned with, let alone nine other economically and strategically uh, significant countries. And General Flynn, uh, one of the one of the specific things he mentioned in his Philadelphia Trumpet lecture, American Crisis here in Edmond, uh, this week at Armstrong Auditorium was BRICS. He he drew attention to that specific uh, alliance is a, is not the right word, but uh, group of nations and and what it could do. And he was speaking of an existential threat, like not just oh America will decline in power, but it could destroy uh, America as we know it and America as a nation. So that's something that's recognized outside of the lines of Trumpet Hour, but Trumpet Hour recognizes it for a specific reason. Yes, that's right. Uh, the, the trumpet watches these kinds of developments very closely because there are Bible prophecies that talk about the United States coming under economic besiegement in the near future. Ezekiel 38 shows that Russia, you know, currently a big, a big pillar in bricks, will be one of the main players in the latter years. And Ezekiel 27 shows that a lot of Russia's strength at that time will come from it being part of a huge economic, uh, you know, grouping. Then there's a related passage in Isaiah 23 that talks about the same alliance, the same grouping, and it shows that it will include Russia and China, also Saudi Arabia, and even European nations. Trumpet editor-in-chief Charles Fleury has written all about this alliance in his book, Isaiah's End Time Vision, and he shows that uh, its, its main goal is to destroy the U.S. and some U.S. partners. So because of that, even if BRICS in its present form may not have a good alternative to the U.S. dollar and doesn't really have much substance binding its members together. Despite all that, organizations like BRICS could be laying the groundwork for the future alliance that is expected to just wreak so much havoc on the global order. 
You recommended Isaiah's End Time Vision, a booklet by Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry, and the article Uniting Against the Dollar. That's Isaiah's End Time Vision and Uniting Against the Dollar. And I think I think this is just such an important thing that's easily overlooked, the, the, the movement of massive amounts of resources. Um, if, if nations can work together, like you said, even temporarily uh, for, for just out of a shared hatred to tear down something, um, it's, it's, uh, it's a formidable, a formidable thing to, uh, to behold. I remember Richard Palmer wrote that article about, uh, China's Belt and Road Initiative. It's, it's designed to build the economic engine that can, can take down and replace, uh, the American led order. So we're watching for that, uh, very, very closely. You're listening to Trumpet Hour just ahead. Our panel discussion. We'll be right back. Welcome back to our final segment this hour. As we complete the week in review, we want to talk about the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, and perhaps in a more interesting discussion than usual in that it involves input from a longtime listener. We want to uh, go over to Jeremiah Jacques to give us an update on the latest to get us started. Are you able to forgive? This question was asked to Russian President Vladimir Putin several years ago during an interview, and his reply was yes, but not everything. The journalist said, what is impossible to forgive? And he replied with one word, betrayal. Now, I would argue that there's uh, very little that Putin actually does forgive. That's clear from almost every aspect of his leadership. But this week, though, we did get a sobering look at how he deals with betrayal. And, um, and that was with the apparent assassination of the head of the Wagner group, a man named Yevgeny Prigozhin. So, this is that man who made headlines around the world back in June when he pulled his mercenary forces out of Ukraine and began marching toward Moscow. He was unhappy with the way Putin's government was carrying out the war on Ukraine, and he felt that the Wagner group wasn't being given the support and the leeway that they needed, so he staged a mutiny, and he marched his troops into Russia. Uh, Prigozhin actually captured some vital military sites in the Russian city of Rostov-on-Don, and he dealt the Russian Air Force what may have been its most devastating single blow since the war began. He shot down seven military aircraft and killed 13 Russian airmen. But then, when Prigozhin's forces were about 125 miles from Moscow, he gave the order to stand down. So they stopped, and Putin remained in power. So ever since then, there has been endless speculation about what really happened, about whether this was a real uprising or something that Putin actually ordered for his own purposes. Many said it was, you know, a clever Kremlin plot to get the Wagner group inside of Belarus. That's where Prigozhin and the rest of them were exiled. And some said that was the whole purpose so that Wagner could then invade Ukraine and specifically Kyiv from strategic locations in Belarus. So there's been endless speculation along those lines and going in a dozen other directions. But most serious analysts have said since June that Prigozhin was basically a dead man walking. And on Wednesday, he was in a plane heading to Moscow, and that plane was apparently either shot down by a missile or maybe blown up by a bomb that had been planted inside of it. There's still a lot that we don't know. Putin has not claimed responsibility for the move, and there are actually half a dozen other parties that are being blamed. 
uh, everyone from Ukraine and Belarus to the Russian military industrial complex and the United States. Some even blame Prigozhin himself for orchestrating what they say was a fake attack. So there's always room for lots of questioning and doubt with something like this. Russia is a riddle wrapped in a mystery and stirred into a big bowl of borscht. So there's always, <laughs> there's always some doubt. But this was almost certainly Vladimir Putin showing Russia and showing the world how he handles betrayal. Prigozhin was a man who had publicly challenged Putin and had uh, humiliated him with that open mutiny. And I think most analysts were actually shocked that Prigozhin hadn't been taken out earlier. But Putin bided the time, and then two months to the day after that mutiny, Prigozhin was killed. Another clue incriminating Putin's regime was that just three minutes after the plane crash, Russian state media, TASS and RIA Novosti, said Prigozhin had been on the plane three minutes after. So normally it takes several hours for the press to get a hold of a flight manifest and, and uh, confirm who the passengers were. But this time it was just three minutes. So that's suspicious. And it lends credence to the argument that Putin was behind it. And, and actually, I don't think those reports that came just three minutes after the crash are a case of Putin's regime media accidentally reporting it faster than they should have. I think this was Putin making sure that everyone knew it was him. Of course, he officially denies the assassination, but he wants his men and others to know how he deals with betrayal. It's also notable that uh, Wagner commander and co-founder Dmitry Utkin was also killed in this crash. And on the same day as the crash, one of Russia's leading generals, Sergei Surovikin, was fired. And, and he was known to have close ties with Prigozhin. So getting rid of all three men on the same day um, really suggests not just a purge, but it suggests a purge that Putin wants to be seen as a purge. And all of this shows that Putin is still in much better shape at the helm of Russia than many in the West seem willing to acknowledge. And, and uh, getting rid of Prigozhin and these others very well may have strengthened his image quite a bit. And we just crossed the one and a half year mark for this war just yesterday. It's 18 months since it was expanded into a full-scale invasion. So it's a good time for Putin to have a strengthened image. Wagner, of course, quite a powerful mercenary group. They're involved in Niger, as we mentioned. Uh, it's a private army. And for it to turn against the Russian military, uh, a Russian mercenary group to to draw blood uh, from the Russian military is is hugely significant. And there is anti-Putin sentiment in many places in Russia. And yet the message you've heard from the trumpet over and over and over uh, is the, the one thing we know for sure is that Putin will remain in power. Not only that, but he will lead an Asian conglomerate um, that uh, includes China, and China won't be the head of it, but Vladimir Putin will, and he's uh, consolidating his power in a, in a brutal way uh, this week. But but talking about the war in, in Russia, uh, between Russia and Ukraine, uh, the feedback I mentioned earlier disagreed with some of the points we've made about that conflict, and... Uh, I recommend you you write us in with your thoughts as well. Letters at the trumpet.com. This listener took advantage of that. Letters at the trumpet.com and took exception with uh, uh, how we portray Ukraine's performance in the war, uh, how Russia is the aggressor, and uh, stated that nothing could be further from the truth about Russia being the aggressor. He pointed to NATO expanding toward Russia's border and pointed to the fact that Ukraine is a corrupt country, which I do know we've we've mentioned many times on this program. Uh, so when when uh, when when being when being portrayed as vilifying, constantly vilifying Russia and, and its culture, and uh, 
saying that it's it's perhaps no worse than what the United States has done in, in foreign countries. Uh, how would we respond to to that? There's an excellent quote from Paul Johnson's uh, history book, Modern Times. It says, the essence of geopolitics is to distinguish between different degrees of evil. Like, no one is perfect. No nation is perfect. That doesn't mean that you can never point fingers at another country. You know, we, we had an entire trumpet issue with pride on the cover dedicated to the evils of the United States of America. Like, you know, this is not something we ignore at all. But at the same time, what Russia is doing, you know, they shot down a plane with, with their own leader. Ten years ago, they shot down a plane carrying the entire Polish government. I, there, is, there, is a, there is a level of evil there that is different from America. And yeah, America is having a terrible influence on the world through their moral leadership, through the decline of family. And we do not shy away from talking about that. That's different from going into another country, systematically raping women, um, as part of a, 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 a genocide, carting off children to be like, you know, this is evil, verging on evil of the level of the Nazis that is going on from Russia right now. And the fact that we're not perfect as a country doesn't mean that we can't point that out. And there's also the perspective on where is this going to go? I remember like a couple months before the war started, I saw a clip from Tucker Carlson saying that Putin doesn't want Belgium. He's just fortifying his borders, et cetera, et cetera. How do you know he doesn't want Belgium? It might sound far-fetched, but in the Potsdam Conference in World War II, an American diplomat went to congratulate Stalin for making it all the way to Berlin, and supposedly Stalin just responded coldly with, well, Tsar Alexander made it all the way to Paris. They, you know, I mean, it's these kinds of... Th People assume that, well, of course, they don't want the rest of the world. Who would think that? I mean, you are talking about the biggest country in the world. It's the biggest country in the world for a reason. And not that long ago, it used to be a lot bigger. It's because they've done a lot of conquering throughout the world and not that long ago. So if you look at Russian historical tradition, which Putin constantly glorifies and says he wants to emulate, who says he doesn't want to expand even further from there? Yeah, I think I think that's a great point. I mean, we are talking about an intrinsically imperialistic nation that seems to have expansionism in its DNA. Uh, we've we've seen that for hundreds and hundreds of years with Russia. Um, and yeah, we can zip through some of these specific points that this listener brought up. Before we do, I should say that just I've I've tried to read and study both sides of this for several years now. Actually, since 2014 and even earlier, I've tried to approach it with Proverbs 11:14 in mind in the multitude of counselors there's safety it doesn't say in the counselors who you like and already agree with there's safety so that that's something that i think truth seekers should try to keep in mind i'm also in regular contact with an analyst in ukraine and with two contacts in russia um, so i really try to weigh this all judiciously i try to beware the sound of one hand clapping but despite my best efforts the fog of war hangs thick i know i have biases as well. Um, the propaganda is on both sides, and I certainly don't claim any sort of omniscience. So anyway, with, with that uh, disclaimer in mind, I would, f with the point of Ukraine being corrupt, Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union. That was a profoundly corrupt system. And after the Soviet Union's collapse, Ukraine remained intimately connected to the Russian system. 
And so that connection mired every level of Ukrainian society and governance in Russia's brand of debilitating corruption. Now, there have been serious efforts underway to combat corruption. In the last several years, the, the current president, Volodymyr Zelensky, he was elected in 2019 with 73% of a vote that no one disputes. And he was elected because he promised real reform and a real fight against the corruption that was strangling Ukraine for all those years. The uh, Burisma situation with the Bidens and all that, that was all part of that systemic corruption. But that was all pre-Zelensky. And that was when Ukraine was run by Russian puppets, in the case of Yanukovych, or Russian-leaning, Russian-compromised leaders, in the case of Poroshenko. So Zelensky, you know, he, he's a political outsider, much like Trump here in the U.S., and there are many analogies between those two. Their promises to drain the swamp and give power to the rule of law instead of the oligarchs and all that. So has Zelensky's government ended the corruption? Well, they've made some notable gains, and that's one reason why Putin waged this war. He was finding fewer and fewer Ukrainian officials and oligarchs who he could bribe into steering Ukraine in the direction he wanted. So that was part of his calculus and his decision to invade. So there have been some gains in the fight against corruption, but this kind of thing does not disappear overnight. And, and uh, Ukraine continues to have serious struggles. So that raises the question, if Ukraine is corrupt, doesn't the country kind of deserve to be thrown to the wolves? You know, that's what this listener implied who wrote the letter. But I would argue that this situation is not about Ukraine being good or bad. Ukraine is not on trial in this matter. This invasion and the decision of other countries to either help or refrain from helping could all just as easily concern Kazakhstan, Moldova, Georgia, Belarus, or a number of other countries. And actually it has happened to varying degrees in those other countries. So this matter is not about Ukraine. It's about Russia. It's about whether the world should yawn as this aggressor nation expands into any other nation's sovereign territory, or whether we should have gratitude for the model that has given the world 75 years of unprecedented, uh, you know, comparative peace between the great powers and try to preserve that. On the topic of Ukraine's corruption, I would also mention that there's not a nation on earth that's free of corruption, as Mr. Palmer said, including the United States. Um, things here in the U.S., especially with our political leaders, have gotten very crooked. So does that mean America deserves to have Chinese tanks rolling down Constitution Avenue? trying to take over America. Maybe some would say it does. But I would reiterate that Ukraine is not on trial. It's about Russia and it's about stopping Russia. And can you imagine the message that it would send to China regarding China's plans to take over Taiwan if the U.S. bugged out of Ukraine? It would tell aggressors around the world that it's open season. The world is your playground. Any neighbor who is weaker than you, they will suffer what they must. That's a, you know, that's a world that most of us wouldn't want to live in. If there's a place in your heart for 1776, no offense to Mr. Palmer, but that was a, you know, that was a special moment in world history. And the Ukrainians are now trying to have their own revolution of independence. And to draw another parallel there, historians say it's extremely unlikely that the Americans would have won their independence had it not been for a great deal of help from the French. And likewise, the Ukrainians now have virtually no chance without outside help. 
Um, also, just just the uh, U.S. interests, strong military support for Ukraine is very much in U.S. interests. It upholds the rule of law, it strengthens and aligns NATO and the G7, and as I said, it makes clear to China and other would-be aggressors that the world is not your playground and that there are consequences for crossing red lines, unlike the way President Obama said there were red lines on chemical weapons use in Syria, but then did nothing. That was devastating to U.S. interests. Putin is the central figure, and I would not recognize that, and I would not understand that, uh, the importance of that, except for Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry pointing that out. I would not be uh, focused on him and not recognize that he is uh, uh, the, the central figure, and, and as you're characterizing it, the, the one on trial, rightly so. Uh, and I should repeat that I appreciate a longtime listener or a new listener to take the trouble to contact us and ask reasonable questions. These are reasonable questions. Uh, as, or as in this case, lay out some reasonable arguments without question marks on the end. <laughs> uh, but that shows an engagement. That shows somebody who's who's really listening and, and, and uh, engaging with the issues themselves. And uh, he pointed to NATO expansion. Trump, Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry has pointed to uh, U.S. and NATO expansion. I mean, that was back in the Bush administration for pushing against uh, Vladimir Putin for the uh, the Balkans, uh, as he's pointed out. So, so the guiding um, the guiding criteria here is Bible prophecy that, uh, and not just that, but Bible prophecy as explained by Gerald Flurry. That is a bold thing to say. It's a very specific thing to say, but that is what trumpet hour says so to just to wrap this up jeremiah if you can you give us what things trumpet editor-in-chief gerald flurry emphasizes in this particular conflict uh sure yeah i think the overarching thing that he has emphasized is that he believes because of bible prophecy that whatever happens putin will stay in power and he will go on to lead russia and asia in far larger wars than the current one. So this is mainly because of a prophecy in Ezekiel 38, which talks about a specific man called the Prince of Russia. And Mr. Flurry has said, Vladimir Putin is this prince. So because of that, we should expect Putin and his regime to survive this war. That being said, though, when Mr. Flurry wrote about this in the Trumpet's June-July 2023 edition, he did say that in his view, it's possible that Russia could still lose this specific war. I'll just read a little bit of his article. It says, From what I see in Bible prophecy, we should expect Russia most likely to win the war and for Putin to remain its leader. However, even if Russia loses this specific war, it is conceivable that the nation could regroup and Putin could remain in power and still lead Asian nations in future wars, which means the overall prophecy in Ezekiel 38 and 39 will still come to pass. So that's kind of what we have at the the overarching view. And uh, most likely, we should probably expect Russia to win. It's still Russia's war to lose. And of course, Russia has firepower far beyond that of Ukraine, a population three times its size. It has nuclear weapons, which Ukraine doesn't have. Um, so all of that would make it very difficult for Ukraine to stand up if the West were to withdraw its support, which who knows what's going to happen with the various election cycles. Um, but this is all just changing the world in, in, in many ways. And there's a lot for us to keep a very vigilant eye on. And the article where Mr. Flurry really addresses these questions uh, and focuses on what is and what is not uh, in Bible prophecy is the Ukraine war will not start World War Three. The Ukraine war will not start World War Three. That was in which uh, edition of the trumpet? That is the June, July, 2023 edition. All right. So June, July, 2023, 
the Ukraine war will not start World War III. And and the the listener again, I I, I hope uh, we hear more from you. Um, but uh, one one thing that was mentioned is uh, you need to look at at uh, the, these issues through other lenses. And I thought that was interesting because uh, Trumpet, our creator, uh, Joel Hilliker, would often say, you know, we look at uh, the events through the clear light of Bible prophecy. So there is only the one lens uh, on this program. There's the only, only the one lens, and it's prophecy, as I said, prophecy in the Bible as explained by uh, Trumpet, uh, Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry. We're not relying on our network of dozens of international bureaus because we don't have dozens of international bureaus. We are not relying on our Columbia or our Northwestern or our Harvard or our Yale degrees because we don't have those. We're not relying on funding from Pfizer or from from anyone else um, on, on any side with any bias. Um, so if you're listening to Trumpet Hour for uh, our brilliance, um, <laughs> you're, you're, you're a little mistaken. Um, Basically, we have the end outcome handed to us on a platter. Europe will unite under Germany. Radical Islam will unite under Iran. Those two will clash. Asia will unite under Russia and China. And Vladimir Putin, not Xi Jinping. Uh, Barack Obama is an intentional destroyer. The Democratic Party has been radicalized. Uh, Donald Trump is not just another president. Uh, The coronavirus scare is a scam. Uh, the survival, even the short-term survival of this nation depends on that man. All of those things are specific outcomes that have just been handed to us. And we can see the, you know, how many, how many lenses could you look at all those issues through? Uh, how many issues could you look at the future of the entire nation or the future of, of nations uh, through? And how many men are much smarter and much better funded and much better connected uh, to make multitudes of predictions on how these issues will unfold? Um, they're far more brilliant and more importantly, they're better connected than I am. Um, so trumpet hours, you're not relying on our experiences or our connections or our brilliance. Uh, you're relying on these outcomes, uh, the sure word of what it says in the Bible, and you're relying heavily on how, uh, Mr. Gerald Flurry defines those prophecies. So that's what the the uh, entire ecosystem of MSNBC and the corporate media and so forth is for. They're 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 for the you know relying on funding and and uh, reasoning and and connections and so forth. Trumpet Hour listeners, you're relying on Bible prophecy, and uh, and we're doing our best to keep up with it and to explain it uh, and to remind you of what uh, Mr. Flurry has said, as in that article, the Ukraine war will not start World War Three. That's all the time we have. Again, letters at the trumpet.com. It could result in you being featured in a, in a program and, uh, and your thoughts and, and your questions and your arguments. Yes, uh, shoot them to us at letters at the trumpet.com. Be engaged. Watch your world as, as we've heard. We thank our panel, Richard Palmer, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, and Mihailo Zekic. And we thank Parker Campbell, Jesse Hester for engineering and production. And we thank you, most of all, listener, for listening to the Week in Review. We look forward to being back with you next week on Trumpet Hour. 